Hello, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and with me today is my friend and closest confidant, India Jones. Hello! So glad to see you and hear you. Yeah, looking great, Inge. Um, And then number two in the crew, coming through, AJ Faleri, the producer. How are the levels? How are the bars? The levels and bars look great. Hello. Hello. Need a little less energy. You're doing okay there, buddy. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm great. I just finished dinner. It was, a, it was a lovely meal, but I would love to get started on these questions. Yeah, we got a lot of great questions. And uh, last but not least, my my glorious uh, esteemed colleague, uh, he recently sent me a photo of his great Rocket League score when he at like midnight or 3 a.m. or something. It's Joshua Deepmaker. That's right. I was 6-0. and out. No one else in my team scored. Uh, it was pretty great. I was feeling, I was feeling alive. We just finished book seven, so it's time for our Reaper's Mail bag show. Ooh. Nice, nice, nice. That was good, yeah. Shout out to good. Aaron. They sent in that pun. What up? Thank we're you, here. We got a bunch of great questions, and we're going to just be talking about book seven and our total thoughts on it. So uh, I got a big cup of coffee, and I'm stoked to get started. It's uh, freezing here. It's pretty chilly here as well. There's really no buildup. There is no, we're just like, we're going in hard and fast, huh? India, how is Nashville? Is, is this what you were looking for? <laughs> in fairness, in fairness, this time it was Austin and it was great, great, great food. Just a fucking globetrotter. That's what they call mm. me. I, I do. <laughs> I try to not go to the South that often, but when it calls, I have to whoa, answer. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, what's wrong with the South, India? Love me the South. I'm thinking the South might have a little different meaning for you than for me, but I yeah, just in terms of, uh, <laughs> you know, as in their, history, as there's a history of states' rights, is that what you were getting? <laughs> oh no, no. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the question. <laughs> All right, and just like that, the South's a nice place, and I know what you mean. That's not anyway. what I meant. <laughs> no. I'm more I'm more meant about the first part than that. Okay. All right. So on the Reaper scale, AJ, turn that into something, maybe. Yeah, please. Maybe. Great content. All right. Great content. So we have two similar questions here. One from Anders Rake and Talk the Younger. Um, I'll try and try and hit them both. So uh to kind of paraphrase Talk here. When I got into the second half of the series, I was amazed at how drastically different the story was than I ever expected it to be. I assumed Perrin was the stereotypical fantasy hero and that the story would be about the Empire itself and Lacine's rule and Dujek's rebellion against her. Thinking back to it, when you read Gardens and Dead House, are you frustrated or pleasantly surprised that the story has taken such unconventional turns and it's converging on a third continent that wasn't even mentioned in the first couple books? <laughs> And Anna Manders Rake has a similar question here about just do you understand maybe why the book started in Gardens and or why was Dead House Gates needed? So in India, what do you think about where the story starts and kind of where we're going now and where we are kind of now that you understand? Great question. Great, great, great question. So do I do I like it? I don't love it. Does, do I understand why? Absolutely. I think when if you can commit to getting through these books, the reason that he wrote them in the way he did starts to make sense because every book you you put together a little bit more and a, every book, there's something that you learned before that is extremely relevant and makes total like, well, let's not say it makes total sense. But <laughs> for example, like the Azath houses, what the fuck was that? You know, back in book one, even. And we're still like, it seems like those little things that were put in there where we were all like, what the hell is going on here? Makes a lot more sense now understanding the context behind it and the grander scheme of the of the plot, the, the grander plot of the book. I don't know. So I, I at first going through it, I would be like and I was like, I don't. Why is this happening? And And we always end up somewhere else and it makes no sense from where we were. But now as we're kind of getting closer to the end, everything somehow, don't ask me, don't ask me how it happened, does seem to have a place. Yeah, that's my take. I think that's a good take. Yeah, I, uh, 
Thanks, guys. A lot of the times when I think about like how these books are structured and stuff, I think about like the the beginning epigraph or whatever it is from Gardens of the Moon. That's basically says like this is a history or this is like a part of a history of the Malazan Empire. And I think looking at these books instead of as like one big cohesive story, even even though they are one big cohesive story, I think looking at them all as like just like different chapters in this you know, the Malazan history book that you get in high school or something. You know what I mean? I think looking at like that kind of helps <laughs> me at least kind of contextualize like, oh, I get why we're like leaving characters behind for this reason or whatever, or like why we're going to a completely new continent. It's just because like that's where stuff is happening. Josh, let me let me I want to hear what you think about this, but I also want to kind of throw you a saucy take that I talked about before on the show once. So um, my friend reads some of these books and we're out to dinner and he finishes Reaper's Gale. And he's telling me how, what he thinks about the books. And uh, he goes, you know, after reading this, I don't really know why we read Midnight Tides. Couldn't have we just come to Letharis and learned all of this when we got here? And I wonder what you think about his opinion uh, in regards to the necessity of Midnight Tides in the series. Your your friend had a, a crazy take. Uh, Midnight Tides <laughs> is so essential for the... I, I, I really think... I've never read a fantasy series this big because, like, why would you? Um, unless your, you know, <laughs> friend forces you to make a podcast about it. Correct. I ask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Asks. Do you want to do this podcast with me? Also, I'm moving to Japan. Yeah. <laughs> it's asked. the only way to stay in contact with <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I just, I think in a book, in a, in a series like this, where like the whole shtick is just all these relationships and the way that they just expound upon each other and they're layered and all of these like dramas that are played across multiple continents. I feel like you need all of that background info for like some of the highs of these later books to really hit. Like at this point, and, and I think the reason is because you, we could come into this book without Midnight Tides if every character or like all of Letharis and the Eater are like comic book villains, you know, and like their whole Mm. shtick is villains. But in this book, that's not the case. Like there's so many nuances and you do not, you cannot introduce all those characters and and have them have that sort of depth to them if we didn't have those last books. Like if we go to another continent now, which I know we're about to go fucking East or whatever, I, they, they've got to be, we, we cannot have this level of characterization. There's only three books left. I cannot imagine that we're going to get a whole, you know what? I'm going to take that back because we are definitely going to get a whole new <laughs> cast of characters in the next like book and a half still. And they're all going to be, you know, mainstays or what the fuck ever. So yeah, um, your friend has a crazy take. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think it's one of those things in regards to why you start with Guardian of the Moon. Uh, I mean, I agree with it, it is It's one of those annoying things where I feel like it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it also depends on how you define the story. I think if you really just define the story about the bone hunters and what they do, then like, yeah, I guess you could like cut out a bunch of stuff, you know. If that's, if that, if that's the story we wanted you to tell, which I guess is in some way the story of this series but not not really that's not really the full scope of it so Mm -hmm. i think the way aj Mm -hmm. put it is really really smart as calling this like we're basically reading the history of this era of the malazan empire yeah well that's how i think that's literally the epigraph of book one of gardens of the moon i think it literally starts out as like here's a history oh here we're going this is a story about compassion at the end of the day guys yeah story about compassion at the end of the day story about compassion at the end of the day so here's one I want to plug from Krieg, who actually had a long question, but I wanted to pluck, pluck one paragraph and kind of press you guys about it. So here he goes. Uh, People often bring up the subject of all these dead fools being brought back to life. Compared to other series out there in really any media format, it almost feels like an en masse resurrection of fan favorites, mostly. There are complaints of cheapening the character, plot, motivation, etc. But I think the discussion could use some perspective that is both more grounded and more nuanced than the usual fan rebuttals of themes and catharsis that can't bandy to rout. And then he goes on a bit. Um, and, I, and I just wanted to hear, AJ, we, we do have some people come back in this book, but we also have a lot of people not come back. But... I'm still curious about your opinion and, and kind of uh, what you think about uh, this kind of line of thought, line of questioning. Well, I don't know. What's your where's your head at? I mean, I don't really have a frame of reference for like other fantasy series, so to speak. But like I have to imagine bringing bringing characters back from the dead. It's probably a, a relatively uncommon thing. And I don't know. I, I, I thinking about it in this context of like this has happened like a lot in this series. And like, yeah, I guess it has. But I hadn't really thought about it. Like none of these like 
I don't know, resurrections or reincarnations or whatever have really like, I don't know. I don't feel like it's like being overdone or anything. And like the, I don't know, like people complaining about it, cheapening the character. I don't think you need to have a character die in order for their arc or story to have meant something. You know what I mean? There's no inherent like virtue to a character dying. You know what I mean? Like just because a character dies doesn't mean like, oh, yes, they saw their story through or like they, you know, they really fought for what they believed in, whatever. Like, I feel like characters can still have those things and that that stuff can still be true about them without them having to like die at the end. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do think like when characters die, it is kind of like there's like a like a drama to it that gets established in a way. But also that's really dependent sure. on whether you're even invested in the character in the first place. Right. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, like uh, a character like, I don't know, Tak, for example, I guess mm. like Tak has died and come back to life. He has like while he was alive, he was, you know, basically just a husk of a person by the end of it. And I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't really have like a full thought on this, like <laughs> a full completed thought on this. But I just don't know if like I don't think Tak dying and then being resurrected into an aster like made his everything that happened before that like cheap or anything like all the the shit he went through was like wild and awful and like meant a lot i think in the long run and i don't think him being like gifted with the the gift of life again makes that any any less meaningful didn't he die again anyway yeah he did die he did wind up dying again yes so it's like honestly isn't this all just like part of the journey he didn't really you know (laughs) you know the death the resurrection the death call him jesus christ adjacent what you know, death, resurrection. Big JC. I don't know if you know, Josh, you died for your sins. <laughs> I, I feel like also, I feel like there's not a ton. I mean, this book has the most resurrections and there's two of them, you know? And one of them doesn't really count because Onrak wasn't dead. You know, he was just my mass. I feel like if we mm. were. Yes, go ahead. Hedge. Yeah, that's, who, that's the other one. Bryce. Did Breeze really die? Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. that's your opinion. <laughs> That's up to interpretation. <laughs> and it's possible that I forgot about Breeze. Uh, I mean, I get it. He's in the book for like three scenes. Yeah, but, there but they were epic. Very sexy scenes. So very sexy. I can't believe I forgot. Can't. Anyway. I feel like, but like all the people getting brought back had to go, th- with the exception of Breeze, who just, you know, had a finger tampon thingy. Uh, the rest of them had to go through some shit to get back. I feel like it's not like it's not cheap. You know, it's not like we're bringing back a whiskey jack like book four or something. You know, most of these characters, we've mm. like sat with their deaths and mourned them and gone through all that. by the time they actually come back, I agree. Yeah. And even with a character like Breeze, like he died and then not 20 pages later or whatever, they were like, oh, here's a finger like the, you know, Featherwitch picks up the finger and it's like, oh, OK, well, there's something's going to happen with this. But it didn't make Breeze's death and subsequent resurrection any any less like wild. Like I was still fucking heartbroken when Breeze died and I was hyped when he came back to life, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I just got to link this other question to this since we mentioned our Lord and Savior. This question comes in from Ryan. Uh, Beak is a newly introduced character in Reaper's Gale, and other than that, other than his hidden talents for being crazy powerful, his defining feature seems to be his innocence. Given that he was introduced seemingly in order to be sacrificed to save the Bone Hunters, it doesn't seem crazy to assume that his innocence, which none of the other soldiers can make a claim to, is thematically important. The soldiers who are protected by Beak's magic are purified, cleansing the dirt and grime and blood from their bodies and turning their hair white. I see a lot of Christian imagery here, with Beak taking on a Christ figure role, dying to save the Marines. I'm supposed to be using this space for a question, so my question is this. What do you think Erickson has planned for Tavor's army that he felt they needed to be baptized first? Josh. Mmm. So, hard fucking question, I think. Uh, personally. <laughs> Threw that one to my boy Jay. Yeah, I mean, they're gonna go to the east where the bad things are from, which I don't, like, who even, what's even fucking left on the mortal plane here that we don't know about yet, you know? Are we gonna go to the land of the Kachin Chamal or whatever? I don't know. No one knows. It's all bullshit. <laughs> I would say, though, I don't even feel like Beak's the only Christ-like figure. I talk, we talked about Coltane yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about, yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like there's lots of Christ-like, you know, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would even describe Beak as like I mean, Christ like. Sure. But it's just it's more of like Beak is kind of uh, martyred in a way, you know, but not necessarily like 
Christ, just like the, generally. A the innocence thing is a really interesting take I hadn't thought about. Like the the soldiers in this book, more so than any other book in the series so far, are just like crude kind of Mm -hmm. terrible humans and like it's painted as acceptable based on what they're going through and what they know they have to go through and that they're all likely going to die and it's really innocent i really like that take though of like beak going through the same shit and maintaining this air of innocence and then just kind of passing that on everybody i do think that'll be really interesting to see next book assumedly most of them will learn jack shit uh but (laughs) we can hope yeah also they did take that innocence and then just like slaughter a bunch of people in the city so for for the good of the people, you know, exactly, just like Christ would want. <laughs> okay. Speaking of, yeah, let's see the segue. Let's go. Come on, Beak. <laughs> India, do you want to ask uh, read Victor's question for me? This question is from our dear friend Victor. I've never met Victor. Well, you don't have to admit that. <laughs> of all the deaths in Reaper's Gale, which death hit you the hardest, and why is it Beaks or Tox? <laughs> <laughs> it's neither of those <clears throat> whoa wait let's guess let's guess yeah guys it's <laughs> actually very... i know my answer i know yeah, my answer and i know mine too if i only i know my answer. i think mine's Dujack. in this book india in this book in this, in this book, book? Oh, this book in this book oh who died in this book who else yeah, died it, in this book talk <laughs> red mask Rulad. okay my answer my answer is okay go ahead yeah you got this i was really sad when Beak died. That was a so sad it was one. one of, so it was <laughs> one of them. <laughs> that was fucked. D- but, but I guess it doesn't rise up to the height of the Dujak death. Yeah, no, that was the true. worst thing in the whole world. Not the whole world. That's, Are you sure you're not that's, thinking of Whiskey Jack? Dujak died yeah, so of sickness in a Jack? tent. And Whiskey Jack was murdered on a hill. That's not who I meant. Neither of them. What is going on? Who are you, you thinking of? Are you sure you didn't mean Whiskey Jack? I'm positive. No, are... no, he had the broken leg. Ah, I got hit with the leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that wasn't it. That, All right, that, Inge, that why don't you go on a mind journey? I would love to know who... <laughs> Coltane? Yeah, Coltane? Oh, on, the, on the crucifix. Coltane's is pretty brutal. Coltane! There we go. Coltane. Yeah. There we go. Poor guy. TBT. But yeah, Beaks was sad too. But nothing really, like... I feel like in this book, so many people died. So many. That it was, like, hard for me to give, like, anything like more because mm. i was just like waiting i just kept you know when you're anticipating it so once it happens you're like oh yeah but i'm not surprised because everyone's dying mm, honestly yeah. i take it all back i'd like to completely restart this question <laughs> worst death by far fucking kettle how could oh, i forget oh my god i forgot about kettle that's brutal you're right number one wow not beak not talk kettle was like eight that's fucked up. She was like well, 800. And the 000. whole thing. And and that we were all just kind of waiting for her to die. Yeah. yeah. There you go. You, ha- you heard it here first. My answer for the record is uh, everyone except for fear. And that's because I still don't like fear. <laughs> and everyone on the Discord has said I'm wrong. You're wrong. Fear sucked. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Real answer though is Rulad. Honestly, feel real bad for that kid. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, Josh, it's funny to say that. I have an email I wanted to read about that. We got a guy wrote in, Tom wrote in and said, while Reaper's Gale isn't in the top three for me, I found the final scene between Rulad Carso, Withel, and the Crippled God to be one yeah. of the most haunting. And it yeah, stuck exactly. with me much longer than I expected it to. The desperation of Rulad to see Troll, the brother he had shorn for speaking truth to power and seeking forgiveness. Carso recognized Rulad's youth and feeling a pang of regret before killing him. And then Withel hearing the cripple god bawling to the sky, its terrible sound, and never wanting to hear anything like it again. I found it chilling, and it, it was the first time I felt come passion for the crippled god. And yeah. also, Tom offers to buy us a beer forever in Australia, so. Hell yeah. Oh, nice. AJ, what about you? Beaks is pretty sad. I mean, I don't know. I mean, yes, Beaks is sad, but also... You know, he's reunited with his brother again. It's very nice. We get the we we get to see him go now through that's, Hood's gates, which that's is pretty heavenly Jesusy. You know, whatever. That's pretty Jesusy, I suppose. But I think that's partly why that was so. Like, if if Beak had just died and like given this grand sacrifice and had the whole thing of like you know purification is final, like that's still like pretty heavy. But then getting to see him like meet back up with his brother on the riverbank is just like breaks my fucking heart, dude. But I feel like I'm kind of obligated to say Trull. Mm. That's mine. Um, That's mine. But but also, like, I I think that might be right, because just like, I don't know, before he died, he just had like 
every last thing that he had taken from him. And then he is just unceremoniously like assassinated. It's just like we keep yeah. seeing we keep saying people who died and I keep going, fuck, I forgot they died. And that is sad. <laughs> Troll's definitely the saddest. I thought it was talk originally, but Ugh. and toxic talks again. Tox is sad because we see a uh, tool like I know fucking I know lose it you know loses shit about it like troll i mean troll has you know i mean he had saren i suppose he's got a baby on the way we'll never meet yeah please i it, i don't know it's just uh i don't know troll's is sad you know boy boy had been through a lot and then uh he saw his brothers die had to leave the woman that he loved and then mm-hmm. and then was killed like damn you know mm-hmm. josh do you want to uh, read Zeta Striker's question. Yeah, I got it. Uh, Zeta Striker asks, at the end of House of Chains, I replied on Twitter that I felt there was a book later in the series that handled its style of tragic anticlimax better. And this was it. The vast majority of stories in Reaper's Gale seem to end either prematurely as characters die off or resolve in surprising ways. Only really Rulad versus Karsa plays out the way the buildup throughout the book implied, and many stories like Red Masks and Scavendari's daughters fizzle out unceremoniously in service of other characters. But I still find moments like the Udinas group just falling apart, Tak almost seeing Tool again, and Troll's surprise death really impactful in ways that the ghost army in House of Change just wasn't. So in that in mind, how do you guys feel about the comparison between the endings of both books, and why do you think Reaper's Gale succeeds where House of Chains didn't. Hmm. What do you think, Josh? Another fabulous question. It's a great, great question, question, Zeta Striker. It's better than I could have put it. And my answer is that I don't think these books are the same at all in terms of the <laughs> endings. Interesting. Uh, I think he's pretty hot on it, to be honest. I I get where he is coming from and maybe, maybe a little bit more removed from this book, I would agree. But I feel like this book ties everything up. I'll maybe rephrase Yes, there are like there are things in this book that are unresolved, but the whole fucking book isn't a lead up to that one mm. thing in, uh. in the way that House of Change promises you a battle between sisters that ends with a unceremonious one shot duel and then a ghost army that was completely out of left field. Like everything in this book, with maybe the exception. Well, no, I think everything in this book felt totally like yes 100 understand where this came from believable the signs were there like even things like red mask which i find incredibly unsatisfying there were enough hints sprinkled and i still find it super unsatisfying in many ways but like them losing yeah makes a lot of sense totally get why they lost uh they were they were going to lose like and uh even though there wasn't like this huge battle in letharis like it definitely ended in a way that had been built up to and like we could have you know we saw so many signs of like beak being important i don't know i feel like they're just completely different and again there were so many fronts in this book so many characters in different completely non-converging places that uh just because one or two of them ended ended kind of with a whimper doesn't mean that the book itself did, unlike mm. House of Chains. Mm. I just want to say I a thousand percent agree with Josh. I do not find any. I, I think it's totally different as well. That weird ghost thing was so fucking weird and out of place. Um, whereas, like Josh said, a lot of the writing was on the wall and whether or not you decided to pick up on it and think that the underdog was going to miraculously win versus the giant army that's kind of on you mm-hmm. i don't know man i i okay f- finish your point sorry like with the sisters the one that died randomly with the uh were they what talani mass what, what were those people yeah, who killed her uh, in mm-hmm. mass. that was like a little bit off but even that kind of made sense because you had the idea that they wanted to fight for something i don't know it, it i i don't see much of a comparison either i don't know i feel i feel more aligned with the question asker here because I do think this book kind of fizzles out in a way. And I think Steve wanted it to fizzle out, but I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's much closer to house of chains and a fizzle than it is like, you know, a traditional memories of ice, big bang. We're all in coral banging, you know? So I I don't know. I, I, I have to say I'm more in alignment and I, and I do think it's more successful, but I, I I don't, I, I still think it, I don't know. AJ, what do you think? I don't feel like this book is a traditional climax, you know? Yeah, I suppose not, because we get the big fight in Lethris, and then there's still so much more stuff that happens after that. And, like, I feel like the the fight in Lethris would be, like, 
the climax, you know what I mean? In like a regular novel or whatever. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think I think I agree more with with Josh and India where like House of Chains, you're leading up to this. I think it's because House of Chains leads you up to this like singular event that just doesn't happen or like just like, yeah, kind of exactly. just like you know, and where this has there's so many threads that do lead to this climactic ending. And just because of like a couple of the storylines, mostly the ones with the dragons, just like kind of fizzle out. Um, I, I don't think that necessarily makes it an anticlimax. I also don't find the dragon one to fizzle out. I do not understand that take very well, just because at least for me as a first time reader, the fact that we had the one scene with the uh, with the two sisters when they when she got the, the sister out of the ground and then we yeah. like didn't hear from them again for 50 percent of the book. I just never felt invested in that storyline, you know? And so the fact that it fizz, you know, the fact that it ended in like a very violent, very fast fashion, like I just never felt like that, like they were Josh, never. Yes, go ahead. I, I, I'm going to double down on what you said, because I have to tell you, I, I, I think that storyline is, you know, fine, whatever. I don't care about it. And it <laughs> exemplifies this type of thing where. You know, there's all these fucking stories. And what what really happened with all those sisters is one of those Malazan things I never super tracked. And I never really got it the first time through. And this time through, I got it. Uh, you know, I got it, the gist of it. But I just, it was like, well, it's just not that important. They're there. They're kind of like evil schemers and they get they, they do their thing. And it, it just was never this huge thing that I yeah. globbed onto because the, the book doesn't put a lot of time into it. It's no, not that it, important. It just, it, there needed to be tension while those people were together. You know what I mean? Like there needed to be right. a, a, a reason for tension to remain heightened and also because I I think it played beautifully into the next scene of the other group arrived. I mean, that's really why I was there, right? Is the, so that half of the yeah. group wasn't there when Udinas's group arrived. Like, do I? I, I, I just. I yeah, know. it's it's not so it's not so much that it, it that it wasn't a fizzle out where it was like it's like oh man that nothing happened it just like it ended and it was like they were kind of setting this up as to be like something was going to happen and then that was what was going to set that storyline off and then that thing didn't just just didn't happen so I was like oh all but right like for example like, of a fizzle out Ikarium just leaves he just no, walks away who would yeah. disagree <laughs> I think that is the climax of the book I think the climax of the book for me is Ikarium. The climax of the book is Akarium just leaving. Is Akarium, uh, put, you know, that house just kind of doing its thing? And look, I look, Peter, I got bad news. I've not read the rest of the books yet. I actually knew that about you, Josh. Yeah, well, most people don't. Um, <laughs> I, usually, I usually lead with, hi, I'm Josh. I've read Malazan. Uh, uh, How's that like, working out for you? Pretty great. Uh, no one talks to me, and that's the goal. <laughs> I super feel like that moment is such a turning point in this series. And by the way, if it's not a turning point in this series, <laughs> I'm going to be fucking livid if nothing, if mm. like this is not a very important thing in the structure of this book is a carrium figuring out this thing and activating it and going wherever the fuck it brought him. So I thought that, that was my favorite parts of the whole book. Well, listen, Josh, can I tell you what AJ? I was going to ask if I could tell you what I think happened with Acarium. If you're going to tell me um, you're back in time, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah, my whole thing is that Acarium it just lives in cycles and he has now just gone back to the beginning of his cycle and it's just going to start over again. Uh, and maybe that's like we get we get kind of a spinoff book about that or something. I don't know if that exists or not, but maybe hey, maybe it comes back up later in the series. But part of me feels like that is the end of Acarium's storyline. And if you want it again, you have to go back to Deadhouse Gates and meet him again. If Acarium never came back in this series, I would probably... If we get to book 10 and the carry not back, I will spoil. I will look up and see if he appears in book 10. And if he doesn't, I will not read book 10. That is my <laughs> that is my promise to you. I want to say Icarium has one of the most unsatisfying storylines that I've read thus far, because everything about him is just a mere suggestion. <laughs> like nothing <laughs> is concrete. Everything's like, well, looks like Icarium was here. And it's like. Yeah. But what, what the fuck does that mean? I, so, wait, there are so many characters in this book that are like that are like sitcom style classic Acarium. And like, it's very <laughs> weird that this like that's the one dude has had such an impact. But like also most of the series is completely unnoticed and everyone just goes, who's the fuck this guy? You'd think if there's been an immortal half blooded jacket for the last 12,000 years that everyone on. I'll tell you right now, if there was anyone like that on Earth, 100 percent, I would know what he looked like. <laughs> I agree. I would have Googled him multiple times. Yeah. 
Well, okay, but I don't think they have Google, to be fair. All right, they've got magic, AJ. They don't need it's Google. It's better than Google. It's they real Google. Hey, Makra, anyway. put, what's that fucker look again? The 10, 12,000 year old guy? Boom, Makra in your head, got it. Done. AJ, <laughs> do you want to ask uh, Ampersand's question here? Kids these days with their Makra. Nobody lives in the moment anymore. No one lives in the moment. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this one comes from Ampersand on Discord. Thank you so much. Why do you think people have more compassion for Felicin than Featherwitch? Both experienced trauma and were shaped by their environments, yet Feather is seen as a quote-unquote bad character. Oof. Good question. I think it's a good question. Yeah. I could write a book on this question, I feel like. Yeah, right? Yeah, this feels like something you could do, you could do a thesis on. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about that. Why do you think you're going to do a thesis on it? I just think it's... it's, it's complicated i think um yeah please somebody else talk india go (laughs) yes miss jones so here's my thoughts (laughs) miss jones thank you call me by my call me by my my single name um because i'm not married nice get at me in the comments Uh, (laughs) i don't know um okay felicin felicin is a child number one point we she the likeness of her I think we can cons- we can compare more with with Kettle like obviously Kettle's way younger well but also old you know she's been around a while she was a kid she was a teenager like you can't compare the actions of a sassy teenager to a full grown woman also Felson didn't wasn't like I don't know I don't think Felson kind of stumbled into power Felson mm. wasn't looking for power. She was forced into it, kind of, and then was like, okay, well, I have literally no other options. This is how I have to survive, uh, so I'll do this. Featherwitch yeah. did not stump. Featherwitch was just kind of, I don't I don't even know how to compare. Like, I, I think that the, Felicent's just like a more likable character. Like, she was young. She was forced into it. She didn't want it. She didn't, she wasn't actively trying to do anything bad. She wasn't actively trying to hurt anyone. Um, uh, yeah. Can I expound upon that? Uh, correct me if please. I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but like we get to see Felicin quote unquote society, you know, in the, in the camp of the apocalypse, even when she's being controlled a lot by Drishna. And there, as far as I remember, it was, they did their best to keep things pretty chill there. I don't recall there being slavery because uh, I'm pretty sure the Malazan. There was the, the Malazan, guy that there, raped the children. Uh, was, that was there was that guy. Car- yeah, but well, yes, but she. Well, but she, how could I mean, I mean, you can't expect her to know everything. I was gonna say she like knew, but then also Drizna or something was compelling her to like kind of not act on it. I can't remember exactly what it was. That was really terrible. What was that guy's name? Bitathol. And yes, but that uh, wasn't her fault. You can't blame her for I'll, the actions of a sick I'll man. She is not making any choice that are harming people unless you count that which i totally get you probably could i can't remember i haven't read the book in fucking i don't three count years. it that wasn't her choice um versus feather which is like on the record multiple times that in her world slavery super duper still exists and she's just going to like enslave everyone that she hates uh make them miserable and like routinely is just like powers for the strong and crush the weak beneath mm-hmm. your heel yeah, I th- I think to like the the basest way that I can think of it is like Felicin was in search of control of her life, like was just in search of control. Ooh, I like and this. Featherwitch was in search of power, uh, and and Felicin's power only came by way of her seeing a way to control her life and her situation. Yeah, Feather Featherwitch wanted to control others, and Felicin wanted right. to control or Featherwitch control her, yeah. and Felicin wanted to control over herself and like. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great way to to put that yeah i mean you said everything a lot better than i could um yeah i also think there's a just a meta stuff where you know we spend so much more time with felicin she's like a primary character of i mean i would say she's almost the main character of the second book yeah Mm. and and feather which we really only see a little of which i think always does play a role into it and additionally we usually see her from udonis's point of view who she is nothing but rude to usually and to underscore India's point, Felicin is 15 at the time of Dead House Gates. So that's crazy. Yeah. How old's Featherwitch? She's like, she's like, I'm, my gut, my gut was always like 19 or 20. What? Really? Oh, I was feeling more like 27, 28 vibes. I felt very. Uh, I could see that. I could see that with Felicin. I mean, yeah, with, uh, in Feather my head, she's she was in still, her 20s. she was still somewhat childish to me when I remember thinking about her as the caster of the tiles. Like she was still like the new kid on the black. Featherwitch is 18. Call it, yeah. See. Well, okay, fine. Then no difference. 
cut her a fucking break. She was just bitch. <laughs> All right. 18? That's what I always see. Yeah, I always feel I like she's really young. her assault her as well. That did surprise me a bit. Yeah. Well, and she, well, keep in mind, she's 18 in, um, Midnight Tides, and as we all know, Reaper's Gale, it takes place both 30 years in the future and also three months in the future, um, simultaneously. <laughs> Take so, your pick. Yeah. <laughs> Feather Witch is either 48 yeah. or 19. For whatever scene you're in, for it to make sense, pick that time. That's how far away we are from that last book. I mean, uh, listen, I have some compassion for Feather Witch, but when it comes down to it, she, like did a lot worse stuff than Felicin did. That's mm-hmm. how I feel, you know? Yeah, I mean, sure. ultimately, that's what I feel like what it comes down to. Felicin, I think, when you when you count up the sum of her tasks, I, I don't really feel like she did that bad of stuff, you know? I feel like Agreed. what some people get a bit annoyed is that she was, like, mean to Bowden a few times, and, like, I don't know, Bowden go pound sand. I don't give a fuck, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I feel, I... I I feel like that whole storyline is, is like constantly misconstrued because at the 100%. time she's being mean to, to Bowden, she is like fully in the throes of addiction. Yeah, yeah. You cannot like, blame. I, I look, I, I want to, can I? Anyone I, who quarrels with Felicin is, is quarreling with me. I feel, I feel very bad Agreed. about my stance on Felicin back in book two, looking back. I feel very <laughs> yeah. bad about her stance. Yeah, I bet you do. I would like to say that in ma- many times India was right and tried to convince me that I was being dumb and wrong, and I refused. <laughs> <laughs> but we all hate Feather Witch. <laughs> I would say she's one of my least favorite characters in this series. One of my least favorite. Mm. I'll say that. Who? Feather Witch. Yeah. She doesn't even fall into a realm of characters that I really think about. Yeah, see, and that's the thing. She's not even a main character. That's why, to me, I feel like that's more of a main... Like, Felicin's like a character I think about, where Feather Witch, I don't really think about, and then she shows up, and I'm like, ugh, she's here. Right, I agree. She's so... She's pretty secondary. Like, it's like, yeah, trying to make somebody relevant, but they're just not relevant. Nice try. She was always a supporting role, too. Like, and then when she tried to go off on her own, she was just, you know, in a in a cave. It's like when they it's like when they do like a spinoff of like a popular group sitcom and they they pick like mm. one side character to like focus on and it never goes well. Kind of well. a Joey situation. A Joey situation. There it is. <laughs> Ravenswood for you pretty little liar heads no, out there. It's a- <laughs> Yes. I want to see the Venn diagram of 10 very big book fans and pretty little liar fans. <laughs> I got to see that Venn diagram. That's where, that's where I come India in. India and AJ and no one right else. Yeah. <laughs> um, AJ, do you want to read Mar Chaos's question? Sure. Uh, this one comes from Mar Chaos on Discord. Thank you so much, buddy. You're sitting on my keyboard. Please don't do that. Mark's on Mark, your keyboard Mark's right on now? Keyboard? <laughs> Fuck, no, the cat is sitting on my it's keyboard. It's a little far of my keyboard. Oh, my God. Thanks, Mark. Get off my keyboard. This book is filled with some incredibly memorable character moments. Twilight at the Burning Ships, Beak at the Killing Field, Karsa and Rulad, Breeze Bedexts, Glorious Return. Was there a particular event that really hit you with some big time emotional resonance? Mm. I'm giving my answer now. It's when Lestara Yill recalls the mm. her speech, Tavor's speech about our actions being unwitnessed. That's my answer. Mm, mm. I've got mine. Every every scene where we just talked about Masan Galani's ass. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 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 Ass is so fine. You can follow it in pitch black. Love it, Steve. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> wow. Uh, India, do you have one? I felt the most connected. Listen. The one part of this book that really fucking got me was I think mm. it was Saren's point of view. Was that her? Mm. When uh, Silch's ruin. Was that him? Was that mm-hmm. him? Started just fucking everyone up. Oh, that was terrifying. That yeah. to me, like just reading it from her uh, perspective, I thought was phenomenal. Yeah. I loved it. I loved mm. it. I loved the reaction of like somebody who doesn't normally see horrible things happening, see a horrible thing happening. Because usually it's through the lens of like, well, what I mean, like, I don't know. Okay, what do you mean, AJ? I'm reading your face. I don't know. I, I feel like Saren's seen some pretty horrible stuff happen. Why, like... Compared to everyone else, though? I don't know. I don't she know. was I, with... Maybe, maybe more of the perspective of, like, not somebody that's, like, a war person. Sure. So it's She's not, not a soldier. Yeah. Not yeah. a soldier. But she's got soul. That's for sure. She, she, has, she has soul. So... <laughs> You know, when you're reading it from that, it's like too much like fast shit is happening. And it's like this happened and this happened. Bang, bang, mm-hmm. boom. And then I did this. But for her, it was just like, I feel like what the way I read it, 
and I saw it. It was like a death, like a silence of just like, mm. what is happening? And then a reaction. And I, mm. I just, I really, I don't know. I, I just don't feel like it's usually so realistic for something that I like how I would, how I would see it. Whereas it's usually, you know, and then he chopped that person in half and yeah. blood spurted everywhere. And then I chop, I poked him in the eye with that rapier thing, mm. you know? Yeah. I really like that scene. I have a couple. I think the first one that stood out to me was uh, Tox's final scene, like his final battle and death, subsequent death. I don't know. That kind of rocked me a little bit. Uh, I mean, obviously the beak thing, but I think the one that really stood out to me the most thinking about it is like at the very end with Udinas talking to his son just about like the stuff that he doesn't know. And like, even though he now knows everything or something, and rude just being like, I don't know, he just wants to be with his dad. You know, I think that's really uh, emotionally affecting, I think. And I remember getting goosebumps when I read it. So, Josh, do you want to a- ask Battle Dad's question here? Yeah, I like this question. Battle Dad asks, does Udinas know that he's a character in a novel? Through most of Reaper's Gale, Udinas is either deconstructing fantasy tropes or pulling information out of his ass. Information he should have no way of knowing. He never reveals where he's getting these ideas from. What if the source is none other than Steve Erickson himself speaking to Udinas <laughs> through his crazy ass dreams? Love this idea. We're crossing dimensions, baby. <laughs> yeah, I could I could talk about some Attack on Titan spoilers that like really speak to this uh, from the last episode I watched last night. I think it's I mean, it pretty much answers what's happening here. So I could do that if no if anyone's not offended. <laughs> um, let's not do that. I don't care. So okay. if Udinas has the Attack Titan inside of him. <laughs> We know, yeah, we don't find out ever in this whole I mean, book there, where he's there, getting this info from. Udonis right? says a lot of meta stuff. I mean, like essentially half of his dialogue is like, it's like we're heroes in a story on a journey yeah. and you're on a quest. You know, he says a lot of this stuff, you know. Can I ask a question? Yeah. How many fucking fantasy books has Udonis read to be able to deconstruct the hero's journey? You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, the dude spent his adult life, as far as we can tell, being a net mender slave to the Tisty Eater, who, as far as we've seen, do not appear to be big fantasy fans. Mm. As far as we know, they're not big fantasy fans. Yeah, we could be wrong. They could all have a copy of A Journey to the West and Beowulf in every house. And then he's got everything he he needs. Um, Troll Sengar is a virgin for most of the series, so... (laughs) Really fucking got me. <laughs> Only Josh? I thought that was good. Come on. Yeah. Brutal. Aren't most of them? Fear is too, right? He never married. Fair isn't married, isn't he? Betrothed? He's betrothed. Her? I don't he think they fuck. I think, this, I think what's what worries Troll, right, is he thinks Rulad's banging her, which would be like wrong in a lot of ways. I don't think he thinks ways. Rulad was banging her. I think he's they, just... They were Rulad hate. was coveting her. Coveting, you right. His right. brother's betrothed. Was yeah. fear a virgin... Malazan. I don't know. I can't find it. It doesn't say. Let me just look up fear, Malazan. I would love to know more about that type of the the Eater society. You know, it just feels yeah. like there's like that feels like a more thought out society than some of the other stuff we've been to. And I would love to know more about it. You know, uh-huh. but hmm, that's my opinion. Um, all right. I just wanted to include the battle dad question. It was a little fun. AJ, do you think he knows he's a, a character in the book? He says a lot of meta stuff, or does that just yeah, Steve's post? Is that the postmodernism <laughs> leaking through? Yeah, I think I think at this point, Udinas is kind of a self-insert for Steve. Mm. Um, oh yeah, I, I'm sure there's some story justification for it, but will we ever find out? Huh? Huh? Mm. All right. I already know Josh's answer, so I want to come to ask India. This question comes in from Maxwell. Maxwell. To me, Reaper Scale is a book that talks a lot about heroes and subversion. And the most shining example to me is the parallel between Red Mask and Beak. Red Mask is set up to be the stereotypical hero and liberator with badass weapons and causes the, a cause that resonates. Beak is nobody. We do not know him. And he is shy and small to everyone, including himself. Yet, by the end of the series, Red Mask fails everyone around him by clinging on his own ego to the point where Sagtrak and Gunthmach kill him. And Beak is ultimately the one who dies a true hero, sacrificing himself for his friends. This both happens in the same chapter. Together with Tak, who dies to save the children, and with Torrent as witness, we also get to see that such inspiring acts can occasionally lead to a change of heart in even the most cynical of individuals. 
Having now finished the book, India, I want to ask, he's directing this to Josh, but India, how and when did your feelings about Red Mask start to change? And at what point did you think he was not the hero he was introduced to be? And this combines with Chris L's question, who just says, do you think the all Drenay arc was worth reading, writing? I understand why this question was uh, addressed to Josh, because my my perspective is probably going to be a little different. For example, I just want to start out with Beak was not like a shy, small, whatever. Immediately upon meeting Beak, we all knew that he was some kind of sick powerhouse with his little candles and shit. He, so, he, he's a star. You meet him, you're like, this guy's a star. Right. Like, I immediately knew that he was going to do something crazy and helpful because I just feel like it was very blatant. Red Mask. When did my feelings start changing? Um, When Red Mask, like, led the people, what were they called? The all? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. To go kill, like, random people. I was like, mm, this is a little weird. I don't know, like, I you're telling, like, the story you know, says why they're doing it. I forgot why. And that was like, okay. But also the whole perspective of like, that was where, that was the perspective of them killing that guy with the sister, right? Was that that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think like, just to even read how that went down, I, we were all kind of horrified. And at the time we weren't really thinking like, hmm, this guy might just be kind of fucked up. Uh, and like in it for, he will do anything, but still it's not enough. So I think that's when my feelings started changing. By the time he died, honestly, I was so removed from anything that had to, like, bringing up the point of, did we even need the all arc? I don't know why we did. So in my opinion, kind of no. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy anything about Red Mask. Not that, like, it was anything super bad. I just, like, wasn't invested. Which usually, for me, goes with most of the battle scenes and, like, the soldier scenes, so I'm not surprised. But also, he was just a little bit more, like, ruthless and, like, like really wanted bloodshed. And that, like, isn't conducive with being, like, a good person that wants to, like, liberate people. AJ, what do you think about the comparison between these two characters? Um, Between Beak and these types of heroism, so to speak. Yeah. So my thoughts are more just kind of, like, all-centric, I guess, in terms of that kind of whole storyline. Because, like, it seemed like what we were doing with that storyline was showing, like, another Eater-esque society uh, of, like, these outsider, outsider to the Lethery tribes or clans, um, people who weren't in this city, like, rising up against, against their oppressors and then, like, oh, the Eater have now become the oppressors. So that's kind of an interesting, like, you know, di- uh, dichotomy, I guess. And then like where the Eater had uh, Han and Mozag and the Crippled God and stuff and Rulad as their like secret weapon, the All had these Kachain Shamal and Tak, you know, giving them tactics and stuff as their secret weapon. But in the end, I and, and, and I'm not trying to say like writing always needs to say something or something. But in the end, the way that the All storyline ended was kind of just like, Oh, you know, and like it didn't there was there was no like point made or like any sort of commentary made. I I don't think not that nothing that I can pick up on. And I'm not saying that like you need to have a point in order for for writing to matter. But like, I don't know, you kind of do, I think, <laughs> uh, especially in a series I, like this, where I feel like everything that happens in these books like means something, you know, but but that's that's how I feel about it. Josh, I want to come to you last because you've spoken on this subject before, but I'll just say my quick thought. I, too, AJ, uh, feel a little flummoxed, and my best estimation of what this storyline has to do with is this uh, is a kind of re- our intersection, uh, the intersection between a type of imperialism and a type of local people or, or who they're colonizing. But additionally, the type of relationship between like us and violence, so to speak. I mean, to me, the Kachin Chamal represent a type of warfare, um, a type of violence or a type of brutality and how that, yeah. you know, Red Mass wants to wield this and ultimately it ends up kind of wielding him and destroying him and the people. Yeah. Um, and then him, sorry, and then him also being Lethary, maybe, like also throws a whole other weird wrench into it, I think. Well, and maybe if that's how you want to construct race, I don't know, that's a whole other thing. So to me, I, I got to tell you, that, and that's my most generous reading. I don't even think it's that thought through. I, I couldn't really tell you what I take away from it. 
I enjoyed it more the second time I read it. I'll tell you that. I think knowing that mm. where it went when I got right into it helped. I don't know. Josh, what do you think? Looking back on the storyline as the as they said, you were kind of uh, our, our biggest Red Mass fan to where the story goes. What do you think? I don't know. I almost want to just reread some of his early stuff again. Although you've just done that and it does not appear to have really rekindled a passion for this character or plotline for you. Mm. I, I, I just I, I didn't hate it. I don't hate it. I I, yeah. I I don't feel like I would detract from it, to be honest. Yeah, I definitely would. I'm going to wait and see if anything ever comes of it. I, I imagine we're really not going to hear from Red Mask again. It just kind of feels like Is the it, safe bet at this point. We? Well, I don't think we're going to hear anything about this storyline, really. The all were pretty much wiped out all that's left is like those kids and either you know none of them know who he was i did what something that really kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit now is when we're introduced and i didn't really think about it much at the time but like i kind of it's it's kind of weird to me that his character was like built upon the idea at the beginning that he was like wanted everyone to return to the ways of the all and he wielded their ancient weapons that they used to use and he knew all these history things but then also wanted to adopt um, you know malazan tactics and it just never now looking back i'm like i don't really know if that fits it almost makes me wonder if like there, there can't have been two red masks that's just too ludicrous even steve no. wouldn't pull that shit i just well, i now i now look back and i feel like there's really conflicting characterizations that i I wonder how I would see in a second read. Yes, India. Well, we never did learn why they turned on him. Like, we just don't know. He was just, right? he, because he betrayed, you know, what he, their mission was. And their mission was to kill and he would be their leader to kill. And he sort of started thinking about, you know, retreating and restarting and stuff. And they were just kind of like, nah, fuck that. We also, who proclaimed him with a mortal sword of the Kashin Shamal? Do you remember that? Who who did that? I th- was it talk? I think someone was talking to Talk. So I feel like it was Talk because no one else really would have known what a mortal sword is besides him, right? He's the only one who would have known what that was. So I'm curious about that to see, like, was that even true? There's an epigraph that kind of, like, hints at him that I read yesterday when I was getting ready for the epigraph episode that makes me also reconsider things. I don't know. I guess oh. I'm, I'm I'm relatively dissatisfied with this <laughs> with this arc, and we'll see if I feel differently later. I kind of want to talk to Steve about it. Like, yeah, I'm, well, I'm definitely going to bring it up. Yeah. India, do you want to ask this last question? I'll check out the name. Read the question. I'll try and find it. When I first read Reaper's Gale, I remember thinking how much it felt like the end of a series. Rulat is dead. The crippled god's empire has fallen. The Sengar brothers dead. The Lethery Eater hybrid state destroyed. <laughs> Jesus. Withel brings a hammer down on the sword. Bam. End of story. <laughs> I remember thinking, damn, that was satisfying. And then remembering there are still three books left. I know there are loose ends to tie up, but now with this massive eater driven plot line that tied together the entire middle third of the series is over. Oh, my God. What do you think the central focus of the series is going to be going forward? Uh, Well, considering the 10th book is The Crippled God, I'm going to assume that The Crippled God (laughs) is not over. Um, (laughs) If only I wouldn't have known that, but I do. So I'm going to say... I'm thinking. By the way, shout out to shout out to Sidiosaurus for this question. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Definitely something with the crippled god is where do we think Carson's gonna be, guys? Where did he leave off? I don't even remember. I would not be shocked if Carson just sort of fades away slowly but surely after that. Absolutely not. Ooh. Carson's definitely in the rest of these books. All There's I, no way. All I know is that th- my boy has a spinoff series, and this is a great opportunity for him to just. Whoosh, whoosh. Oh, I didn't yeah. know. I didn't know our boy had a spinoff series. We still have a ton of characters, though, because like, what the fuck is next with Tavor? Like, and where they're going? They're going to the east. That's all we know. Well, there Which, you go. Which, by the way, now has a fucking coalition formed against Letheri. So I'm sure, I'm sure that'll get resolved in three sentences in chapter two of the next book. Right. If, if even if it even gets Tavor, brought up, the leader might... of the Eastern Coalition shook hands, pleased with how the negotiations <laughs> went. I'm sure some bullshit like that. I don't know. I think it's going to be about where they end up going. Maybe in the night. Who even? I don't. I've really. That's such a hard question to ask too, because. If you ask every time after every book, somebody says, what do you think is next? I have been wrong, except for once in my life when I said, (laughs) we're going to meet an entirely different cast of different people and go to an entirely different place. (laughs) So I'm going to stick with that answer. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you guys this. The good news is, as you may or may not know, the next book is taking us back to Darujistan. Oh, I didn't know. (gasps) I didn't know. 
fucking go. The city of lights. Uh, yeah, Pete, I wasn't sure if you were trying to to, to bury that or go or back anything, to Darujistan because I, Darujistan. Because I know you what you were thinking. What is Chalice to Crap, Arl up but, to? Crap, what is but, she doing? Crap, I oh gotta God, figure Chalice, it out. Is Chalice to Arl gonna be a character we have to give a shit about? <laughs> Whatever <laughs> happened to uh, Absalar and Crocus? Yeah, yeah, there's Crocus, there's Absalar. To be God. honest, we so still have yet to unfold what's going on with Cotillion and uh, uh-huh. Shadow Throne. Indeed, I got bad news. I, I believe people have said that that is the literal plot of the series, is, is that, is, is them. So. It makes sense because those motherfuckers are always are working behind the scenes, just generating shit, but yeah. n- never we never know why. It really I, I, is just a fight between Shadow Throne, Cotillion, and the Crippled God. Yeah. <laughs> I do just want to shout out um, and Bjork is his prophet uh, because as soon as I opened the mailbag channel on our discord, they popped in there. Only real question. How excited are you to go back to Jerujistan immediately as soon as I open the mailbag channel? So uh, props to you for getting in there with that banger of a question. Yeah. And listen, we look forward to talking about Toll the Hounds next season. But before we do, before we wrap up this episode, yeah. it's time to put this book to bed properly. AJ Faleri. Looking oh, back no. on book seven, Reaper's Gale, what do you make of this bad boy? I liked it. I honestly, I, I can't remember. I, I, I have such a hard time remembering how this book started and the stuff that happened in the beginning half of this book. There's just so much of it that's like a blur to me. And that's probably because we read it over six months or three months, whatever. But I, all in all, I enjoyed it. I think uh, I like Letharis as a setting. I think it's interesting. I liked all the all stuff. I like this. I love the shake stuff. That's that shit rules. And I'm excited for that to pop off. Um, hopefully. But yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, overall, pretty positive. Joshua Baker, what do you make of this book? Book seven. I liked it a lot more before I found out we were going back to Jerusalem. Because now I'm very upset that um, I'm going to have to like remember all of this book. Two fucking books from now, which is just the, the best. Maybe maybe we'll come back here halfway through the next book. I don't know. Uh, I think this book is fantastic. And I think that what was the book before this? Bone Hunters. Bone Hunters. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I think every few books I'm like, damn, this is a pretty this series. Is all right. I now have when people say, should I read these books? I have transitioned to look, I'm telling you, if you get to book seven, it's great. Uh, that is how I've started transitioning to talking about it. I, th- I, I think this book is fucking fantastic and i think unlike book three which is the perfect fantasy book i think that this book is what make is is the start of what makes reading this series worth it if that makes sense mm. i don't really know what mm. you That's mean by that point. i think book three shreds so uh, yeah book three is the literal perfect fantasy book but this book justifies this series more so because you know we're only three books in at at you know memories device like that's just a great fantasy book it's very hard to write to have book seven in a series be the one that is just now starting to get threads together and keeping someone invested and i'm i feel that way very much so i'm very excited to read the next three books all right i gotta say more excited than i was after book six don't fully understand it but i'm gonna move on Inge, uh <laughs> what do you think book seven looking back on it number one memories of ice was the best book of all time Number two, uh, this book was, uh, it was pretty good. It was, it was, um, it was pretty good. I didn't love it. I did, but I didn't hate it. I'm grateful for the bits of like comedy and lightness in a book like this. So I'm happy that we have characters now like Tehol and, um, Shirkalal. Like when that, who's that girl? Funny one. That's really good at killing people, but a drunk. Hellion. Hellion. These are the moments in books like like in this book that I liked the best and they are far and in between like so that kind of sucks. But overall, I agree with you, Josh. Um, If you can get through all of these books, it does start paying off now. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. this was the first book where I think a lot of times we weren't like, guys, what the fuck? Um, And I keep saying that. But every time it gets a little bit more like, oh, Oh, so I am excited. I'm very excited to go to Drugistan because uh, it's familiar. Maybe we'll see. Um, There's a lot of familiar faces. A lot of familiar faces. Very excited about that. So I love mm-hmm. going back, uh, going back home. 
but I am miserable to have to come back to this in another two books. Assuming we do. I'll tell you guys this, and I'd love to hear about where you think this falls in your estimation. To me, I feel like I'm such a classic read. Uh, I, when I first read this book, easily one of my least favorite of the whole series, and I didn't (gasps) like it at all. And primarily because of this. When I read Midnight Tides, I was like, this book rules. I love this book, and I love everyone in it. Go to Bone Hunters, and then, you know, halfway through Bone Hunters, they're like, wow, we're going to go meet Rulad and meet everyone from the fifth book. And I was like, fucking hell yeah, let's do it. Let's meet up with all those characters I love. And I really was so hyped up for this duel. We showed up on page one of Reaper's Gale, and it was like, so here are the Patriots, and this is Tanel Yathvinar, and now we're going to go to Drenne. And I was like, what the fuck is all this shit? I thought we were reuniting with my favorite characters and we were going to have a cool duel. (laughs) And I, for some reason, I I don't know why looking back, but I was like ready for the duel to happen page one. And then the duel happens page 1300 pretty much is lame. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And I was so pissed about the duel. And I was also just so pissed. We spent so much time with people I didn't care about doing a bunch of stuff. So honestly, I had such a low estimation of the book. No, kind of knowing what it was, I was really able to come in the book and appreciate it more this time. (laughs) Um, So it it really rose in my estimation. I will say, I really agreed with the, uh, the question we kind of touched on earlier. I think in many ways, Reaper's Gale is a more successful version of kind of the House of Chains type of thing, you know, where it's kind of trying to do something a little off kilter. And Mm -hmm. I do think it finds more success, but ultimately it's still not, my one of my favorite or I I would say in my highest estimation but it's definitely not the complete mess of a book I once thought it was so I I definitely enjoyed it more on my second read through so like usual the the books with the lower esteem I'm like oh this is better than I remembered you know (laughs) I cannot believe you made it to book seven of this series and thought Steve would give it give you what you wanted (laughs) I feel like uh I feel like Charlie Brown with the football yeah, I just that's that is insane to me that you were like, I bet Steve's definitely not going to edge me this time. <laughs> that's <laughs> fucking funny. For. Oh my God. Um, edge me. Remember when you guys taught me what edging was? <laughs> Did we do that? Yeah, yeah. that's uh, we've come brand. so far. This podcast is important. <laughs> um, <laughs> a, a, okay, uh, here we go. AJ Filari, lay it on us. All right. Um, how are we doing it? Bottom to top, top to bottom. Do whatever you want. Hit me top yeah. to bottom. Actually, right. no. Hit me bottom to top. Yeah, that's bottom more dramatic. To bottom to top. All right. We've got, starting out, book two, Dead House Gates. Whoa. As the worst? Yes. Book four, <laughs> House of Chains. Uh, then we've got Bone Hunters, Reaper's Gale, Gardens of the Moon, Midnight Tides, Memories of Ice. This crazy, is the hottest of fucking takes. Crazy this is the That's hottest. Of India, takes. in the last ranking, you ranked House of Chains number one. She's gonna do it and again. And I'm going just... to again. And <laughs> yeah, I'm she... going to again. Gardens of the Moon number three. AJ the Mad Lion. Right. All right. All right. I like Gardens of the Moon. Josh, I'll, I'll go. I'm ready. All right. Bottom to top. Seven. House of Chains. Six. Gardens. Five. Midnight Tides. Four. Dead House Gates. Three Bone Hunters, two Memories of Ice, one Reaper's Gale. Wow. Whoa. The number one Reaper's Gale. Didn't see it coming. I'm 90 years uncertain whatever book we've just read every single time I put number one. The (laughs) recency bias for me is always very, very prevalent. I'm not that consistent. I I put House of Chains last time. So uh, here we go. For me, uh, the lowest is House of Chains. Um, (laughs) What the fuck? Number uh, after that, I have Reaper's Gale. I don't think either of those books are great. Then we have Gardens of the Moon. These are all in the kind of okay category. Then we get into four, I think, whole nonstop great books. Dead House Gates, great book. Then Bone Hunters, great book. Then Midnight Tides, absolute banger. And then Memories of Ice at the top. Uh, th- those two always switch places. They're both just amazing books. So. They're so good. I'm I'm really struggling because while I was sitting here, I like really... I can't believe you put Midnight Tides 5, Josh. Midnight Tides is amazing. I- I feel like I like Reaper's Gale so much, but the problem, I, I really do think Reaper's Gale is, a, I think this book's a huge turning point for me in this series. But what I find strange is that I have such milk toast like feelings for Midnight Tides, Ugh. the literal precursor to this one. All right, yeah. Ange, us, hit us with your list. All right. Coming in last, we have Dead House Gates. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> two of you? <laughs> then Gardens of the Moon. Then Reaper's Gale. Uh, those are like my bottoms. Mm-hmm. The middle, uh, Bone Hunters. Then Midnight Tides. Memory of Ice is number two. And number one is House of Chains. <laughs> All right. There we go. Wow. We got some divergent lists. We are not in yeah. consensus. Literally not at all. India and Josh, if you could have told yourself in the beginning of 2018, the year, like the beginning of the year before we started this podcast, uh, if you could tell yourself right before we started this podcast that you would have opinions about seven books. <laughs> which... there's, there's almost nothing in my life I could have opinion of seven on. <laughs> I feel almost like this is nothing. my most committed relationship is to the four of you, like the three yeah. of you. Like, there's like is... nothing else in the world of that I care about seven of yeah. and could distinctly Types of cheeses, rank. Josh? No. You only need four. Any more is fucking the bourgeoisie taking over. <laughs> I got to say, though, in closing, just a thought that I would like to share. Mm. When I started these books, I was very upset. I was excited to do it with my friends, but I also was like, this is the worst thing that I could have committed myself to. Yeah. And, you know, three, four years later, this has brought consistency. It has brought lightness. It has brought positivity. (laughs) It has brought closeness. It has brought friendship. And I'm very grateful to these books and to my friends oh. and the community that we are a part of. So, well, that's all I have to say. I am too. And what a really nice, thoughtful message to kind of wrap the show. Yeah. But I, I, I feel the same. So thank you. Thank you. On a slightly less sentimental note, India, your accent never comes out harder than on the word. What? Yeah, it did. It, Ross, did, it did peek through there. <laughs> Put her away. <laughs> Put it away. All right, everybody. Ugh. Well, that'll do it as for us today, unless we have anything else for this, our seventh season of the show. Gardens of the Moon is worthy of the third spot. Don't come at me. Gardens <laughs> a, of the Moon was horrible. It's it's good if you know what's going on. It's worthy of a reread, <laughs> but I'm not gonna give it I agree. more character. It is worthy. Six. It is worth all of these books, in fairness, are yeah. worthy of a reread. Yeah. I would love to have the experience that Peter has going through these books again, yeah. uh, because I think I would definitely enjoy all of them a lot more. And I wonder if our rankings would change. Oh, 100%. for sure they would. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, I think they would. They definitely changed going through it this time. All right, all, all right, right, everybody. Well, we uh, end well, we're going to talk to Steve in like thirty minutes. So I hope you all have a great day. And uh, anything else? No. All right. I say come. You say passion. Come. Passion. See you. Hello, everybody. Producer AJ here, and you should be thankful because all I want to be doing is playing Horizon Forbidden West. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast, and thank you so, so much to everyone who submitted their questions and comments. If you'd like to give us your thoughts or feelings about this episode or about anything we said on this episode or about anything we've said on any of our episodes, uh, you can always email us 10verybigbooks at gmail.com, tweet us at 10verybigbooks, or you can head on over to our Discord bit.ly slash VBB Discord. That's capital V, capital B, capital B, capital D. Discord. That link will also be in the show notes. Uh, Thank you to our wonderful patrons over on patreon.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash 10verybigbooks. That link is also in the show notes. And as always, thank you so very much to Dan Gezerick for making our spectacular cover art. You can follow him on Twitter at A underscore W underscore Dan G to learn more about Twitter downvotes. And of course, the wonderful music in today's episode, including the remixed intro and outro track, is by the one, the only Amaranthin from their album Simulant Rain, which you can find along with their other music including a single version of the remixed show theme on bandcamp.com links to their pages will be in the show notes and 10 very big books will be back next week on march 4th for the reaper's gale spoiler episode with very special guest cal from really good and kind on youtube and admin over on the moon spawn discord i'll talk to you then and thank you so much for listening <laughs>